0: Hey there, Channel Masters, Kristen Carpenter here, your host of the Channel Mastery Podcast. And you have been listening to the show, but really haven't heard from me in any kind of a solo cast or introduction this whole year so far for Q1 2021. And that's because things have been just blowing doors busy here at Verity Brand Communications, the presenting sponsor of the Channel Mastery Podcast. And getting shows out every week has literally just been everything I could do, <laughs> but now we are in a position at the agency where I can step back in and start being creative once again and checking in with you and all of that good stuff. So I wanted to just let you know, here we are in mid-March 2021, we're going to be entering a new season of Channel Mastery in early April, so just a couple weeks from now, and we've got some incredible shows on the horizon, including Robin Thurston from Outside Incorporated, Uh, Stephen Reginald from Gear Junkie and Lola, uh, Sarah Gross from Live Feisty. So many awesome shows. We're going to be touching on a lot of trends that are happening and just a new shorter uh, show format. Super excited. So keep that in mind. We're about to roll out a new season and I'm super excited to share all this with you. But As I said, here we are, mid-March 2021. It's amazing to think about the fact that a year ago, the world was in lockdown for COVID-19. And wow, what a year it's been. I don't know about you, but the change from December to January, from 2020 to 2021, literally was just a day. It was another day. Didn't really feel like much had changed. And that was really challenging for a lot of us, (laughs) leading specialty businesses, brands, retailers, et cetera. And it's been just really, really busy, especially in outdoor active lifestyle, cycling, endurance, and snow sports. <clears throat> really, really busy as we're we're trying to keep these newcomers and also continue to nurture and grow our audiences of those passionate people who have been in our worlds for some time. It's a great time to be in this business. And I'm super excited to serve you with Channel Mastery going forward so that we can actually align everything that we have within our companies that will help us attach ourselves to this growth and embrace this opportunity. That's what we're here to do. So I wanted to just put a, a replay show up for this week. It's Jen Krisky, the founder and CEO of Machines for Freedom. There's a couple reasons why I wanted to put Jen's show back up. If you haven't listened to it, here's your chance, and this will make it really easy to find. But it is our most downloaded episode ever. I'm really proud of that. She has such an entrepreneurial spirit and a no BS approach. You will love what she has to say in here. But I listened to it again a couple times, once in December of last year and once in early February of this year, 2021. And the spirit of this show and a lot of the stuff that Jen talks about is so, so important to where we are right now. In terms of our consumer being the absolute North Star and doing everything that we can to know exactly who we're serving, what channels they want to be on, what that experience should look like, what the competitive landscape is, she really talks about this so much through the lens of her brand, Machines for Freedom. She is a visionary leader, and I really hope you enjoy this replay of the Jen Krisky podcast from Machines for Freedom. And then keep your eyes peeled for a couple weeks from now when we have a brand new season of Channel Mastery launching. All right, let's do this.
1: For me personally, nothing was a bigger turnoff than when I saw this stuff happening online. I was like, oh, this looks fun. Like, this looks like a really cool group. And then I would show up to the ride and like, no one would even say hello. I was like, wait, this isn't what I was sold. And it would actually like damage my view of brand. So I was like, I'd rather not do anything if we can't do it authentically.
0: Welcome to the Channel Mastery Podcast. If you're a specialty business and brand leader obsessed with understanding what the most effective channels are today to connect with, serve, and sell to your target consumers, then you've just found the perfect podcast and community. My name is Kristen Carpenter, and I'm your host and the founder of Verde Brand Communications, the presenting sponsor of Channel Mastery. Verde created the Channel Mastery podcast to level the playing field for the specialty brands we serve. Every week on this show, we study how consumer preferences are changing and the evolving channels they like to use to engage with their favorite brands. Once again, welcome to Channel Mastery and subscribe today. Welcome back, my friends, to another episode of the Channel Mastery Podcast. I am absolutely stoked to introduce Jennifer Kriske to you, who is the founder of Machines for Freedom, one of my absolute favorite brands of cycling apparel. Welcome to the show, Jennifer.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: It's awesome to have you here. You have so much to share. Um, let's start by having you given just sort of a bit of your background and, and I guess a self-introduction so that we can kind of set the stage for the conversation we're going to have because I feel like you're coming into this world with such an interesting vantage point and such a cool approach to building community and product. And I just feel like the, you have a lot to teach. So take the floor and, and give us a bit of your background and an introduction.
1: Um, well, thank you so much. That's so sweet of you to say. My background's a little bit eclectic. So I do come to cycling from a very different um, point of view. You know, I started in college in film, like film and branding, and worked in the entertainment industry in my younger years, which then transitioned to an interest in design and architecture. So I spent most of my career doing hotel and restaurant design, um, always have been interested in just like building things, you know, and like taking um, ideas and things that just don't exist in the real world and and turning them into tangible products. Um So I think that's sort of like been the through line of my career from when I was really young. And before starting Machines, I was most recently with a group called Hillstone Restaurant Group, which is probably one of the more successful restaurant groups in the United States. They have about 50 plus restaurants, but have never really fallen into that like, quote unquote, chain restaurant mentality. Um, It was family owned by a very, very bright entrepreneur named George Beal. So I really had the opportunity to learn a lot from him and learn a lot about just like an entrepreneurial mindset and kind of like sticking to your values and, and that kind of tenacity that he had. So I feel like that was really like a great jumping off point for me for when I started Machines for Freedom is I really had this really great insight into like what makes a successful brand. So that was sort of like my career background. And then I got into cycling when I was working in the restaurant space. It's like, as most people have ever like had a waitressing job, (laughs) they know how demanding that environment is. And working in the corporate on the corporate team in their on their design team was like not any easier. The hours were insane. The pressure was insane. If bar stools were breaking, I was getting calls late at night like, "Hey, we need to fix like ASAP because we need to get these (laughs) before lunch the next morning." Like, you know, it was it was really really intense, and you just have people pulling you in every other direction. So my way to sort of have some reprieve from that was really riding my bike and there was nothing better than just like being in the mountains where it was just like quiet and peaceful and like I did not have cell phone service and just to be out there for hours just to like have some time to myself with my thoughts was really uh, I guess like I refer to it as my like extreme (laughs) self-care so so that's sort of like where I really fell in love with the sport the more I got into it, the more I just, I just kept increasing my training goals as a lot of us do. It's like, okay, well now I just did the century. So now I just, now I want to do like a century with all this elevation. And now I want to do like three centuries in a row. And now I want to, you know, so it's like the goals just like grow and grow and grow. And so I got to a point where I wanted to train for a ride through the Pyrenees um, where we were going to do six days and um, you know, 60,000 feet of climbing over the course of the trip. So I started training pretty intensively. And that's when I very quickly realized like how the clothes just did not work. And I was working really hard with a bike fitter to get my bike fit dialed. But, he, you know, we got to a certain point and He's like, you know, the complaints you have are what I hear from almost every woman I fit. And I just got so frustrated because coming from a design background, I was just like, this can't be that hard. You know, like, like I, I don't my male counterparts like aren't having the same complaints. And it just seemed to me that there just wasn't the same level of thought and care that was going into the women's product. So that just like, to be blunt, like that just pissed me off. (laughs) So, you know, and it was like enough to light a fire in the belly to say like, this is like not okay. And I'm just gonna go out there and design a kit that I wanted to wear and that worked for me. And then in the hopes that other women would enjoy it too. And that was like really the launching pad for Machines for Freedom. And when was that? That was, gosh, that was way back in 2013.
0: Oh, awesome. Okay. And so was this like a, how did you roll a company out? Like, how did you make it so that other women could enjoy that? <laughs> so,
1: <laughs> Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I left my job at Hillstone pretty soon after that because I realized, like, that job was so demanding. I was like, there's no way I'm going to ever get this off the ground in a reasonable time frame if I don't, like, go all in. Mm-hmm. So um, I left pretty quickly. And then first thing I did was, like, hit up Interbike where I just, like, you know, I was, I was used to the trade show circuit. And I was really used to sourcing, you know, cause that's like one thing that you do a lot of when you're in the interior design world. So, um, so I just like hit the pavement and started looking for materials, looking for a factory. Um, it was, it was a lot like trying to build something for the restaurant space where you're like looking for materials and finding a, a craftsman and a contractor. And, you know, so, um, so I did that and started to develop prototypes, um, worked with a friend who did have a lot of apparel background. He was in like the surf um, industry for a very long time so like his knowledge of sort of wetsuits and bathing suit construction and stuff like that was really helpful oh interesting Um, yeah so i worked with him really closely on like the technical side of things um i mean we did a lot of prototyping on the first kit god we probably did at least a couple dozen samples um and developed that over the course of about a year before we launched in august of 2014.
0: That's awesome. How did you launch? You know, in my time at Verde, like helping a few brands go literally from like zero to launch and and this has happened. I I guess I'll cordon off these examples to like the last 4 years because the landscape's changed so much. I mean, traditionally, obviously you'd launch through the trade show and you would look at wholesale and I think that you came into this with a non-traditional mindset and yeah. I w- I'm curious to know like if you felt like you needed to build a community first and graft this you know, the product on top of it and the value proposition on top of that, or if you actually crowdsource that. And I'm just curious, like, what was your approach to actually taking this either national or global?
1: Yeah. So, um, you know, the one thing that was really apparent right off the bat, you know, even being this like, you know, newbie into the cycling space was that there was just like such a huge disconnect between women riders and the industry. And, like, you know, all the industry speak that I was hearing did not align with my experience of riding a bike. So, Mm. you know, this idea that like women don't want high performance kit or they won't spend money on top quality gear and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Like I was like, I don't, I will, you know, and I'm looking for it. It's just that I'm not spending the money on it because it doesn't work. And I'm not going to drop a bunch of money on something that doesn't work or it makes me feel awful when I put it on. So that just like, it didn't gel for me. Right off the bat, I knew in order to be successful, I was going to have to go directly to the consumer and not have our message kind of get lost in this game of telephone. So, right. so that was my plan right off the bat. And then as we developed, you know, because we were on this year timeline of product development and there's a lot of like idle time when you're waiting for samples to come back from the factory So, you know, I would like do work on the product side and send it off. And then I'd be waiting like two to four weeks to get samples back to test. And so in that time, I'd be like, okay, well, what else can I do? I don't have any money, right? Because this is all being bootstrapped, but what can I do? So, and that's when I started to develop our social media feed and I would host a lot of rides locally, put on clinics, um, you know, anything I could do to kind of just like get myself out in the community, engaging the riders I started to do. And then I started documenting that. So we slowly started to build our following around the community component of cycling long before we had product. The idea being like, then when we did launch, we had a, you know, a community built in that we could launch to rather than relying on a bike shop or relying on a trade show or, you know, relying on like a third party to, um, to bridge that gap for us.
0: So I have a question. So how did you build... (laughs) This might seem like Captain Obvious, but I have to ask for the benefit of myself and the audience, okay? Yeah. But I think a lot of people listening to this right now might think that the community comes from the bike shop. And it uh, sounds to me like you're building a community that maybe the bike shop, in the you're in Los Angeles. Yeah. So you're not, maybe you're tapping into a group of women who are not necessarily like tied to a shop. So- I'm just curious, like, did this all come from organic social media growth and then you do meetups or like, how, what was your strategy there?
1: Yeah. So, and that's a good question because a lot of community does happen at bike shops, but that community is still very heavily male dominated. Mm -hmm. And in the LA scene, we're a giant sprawl. So you go to a bike shop and you go to a, 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 a ride led by a bike shop. And there might be like, it's like two or three people that are not men uh-huh. <laughs> you know, in that entire ride. So, so that's fine. I would jump in and I would ride and, you know, I was pretty strong back then. So like I could hold my own and I would always sort of like pick out those one or two people that I was like, like you are my people, you know what I mean? Yes, and like we'll have fun riding <laughs> bikes together. So I was like, okay, we're going to be friends, you know? So then I would make sure to kind of introduce myself, get to know them, whatever. And they were sort of of the same mindset where they're like, Oh my God, I'm so glad I found you. Right. And then, okay, cool. And then I'd like go into another part of Los Angeles and like do another local ride and find that other like friend in that ride. And I was like, kind of like hopping all over LA doing that. The more and more I did that, the more I realized like, okay, it's like, we're out here. We're just like all spread out. And there's no, it's really hard to find like a concentrated group of riders that are sort of like-minded in the way that I, that I like to ride and, and things like that. So once I started forming those relationships, then we started launching a ride that uh, was called and Brunch that we led out of Calabasas, which was an area that was like sort of as central as you can be to like the LA riding scene. And that's when I started promoting that ride. And it was great. Like at the time, you know, it was, it was back when uh, Rafa's like Women 100 and, and things of that nature were like just getting off the ground. Mm-hmm. And those rides would see a turnout of like two to four riders, you know? And and a lot of it was like, oh, well, it, whereas other cities would get a bigger turnout. LA's is always really small. And it's like, oh, it's because we're so spread out. We're such a sprawl. Like people won't travel. And then, and then I did Bikes and Brunch and we had 25 riders, like the first day, the that's first ride. That's awesome. You wow. know, and it was like... It it was sort of proof to me that, like, when you invest in the community and in the people, like, it comes back to you. But it really took me traveling, like, all over Los Angeles to form those relationships in order for Bikes and Brunch to start. And then I really just wanted to, like, connect all of those people that I had met in the various corners of the city and, like, bring them all together once a month to ride bikes. So then that sort of got amplified with machines over time where the riders that have our values and and that enjoy bikes in the way that we enjoy bikes, it's like they're out there, but we're not necessarily together geographically. Mm-hmm. And so Machines for Freedom has become a way that we can like bring those people together virtually so that you can see that like the community is bigger than what you're seeing just like outside your front door.
0: That's amazing. And so I almost feel like they were influencers, even though they were just wanting to come over and ride. Chances are probably pretty good that they returned to their corner of Los Angeles and talked their experience and maybe if your product was available at that point it almost became like a part of their identity like here's my here's who I belong to
1: yeah and then like next ride they'd bring a friend because like they'd try it out and they're like oh you know who would really love this is so and so you know and then they'd bring a friend over and then we would grow I think our largest ride got up to like over 40 riders which that's awesome in LA like in in that scene is in like in the women's scene it's like unheard of
0: Mm mm-hmm That's great. So what were some of the channels that you started to use once you had this in-person engagement? And I mean, it's obviously you weren't trying to in-person, like engage in person. You were there to have fun and meet like-minded writers. So it feels like it was very authentic the way it started, but at the same time you evolved it to support what you're doing in your business. And I'm curious, that's also a tough pivot,
1: I think. Oh, so hard. And honestly, I don't know. I don't think we figured it out. I mean, that's why we don't have, you know, we don't lead a lot of rides all over because it was really, really important to me that whatever people experience in real life, when it comes to the brand, that it align with the vibe and the tone of what you see virtually. Mm -hmm. So, cause nothing was for for me personally, nothing was a bigger turnoff than when I saw this stuff happening online. I was like, Oh, this looks fun. Like this looks like a really cool group. And then I would show up to the ride and like, no one would even say hello, you Uh, know? And it's like, I almost felt like lied to, you know what yeah. I mean? Like, I was mm-hmm. like, wait, this isn't what I was sold. So, and it would actually like damage my view of brand. So I was like, I'd rather not do anything if we can't do it authentically. Right. So this year we're actually, is our first year we're going to tackle some, we're calling it machines IRL, right? And we're, we're really tackling some like in real life activations where we can bring some of that digital vibe um, into the real world. So, um, yeah, I'm really excited to see how that pans out over the next year.
0: I am as well. And we're definitely going to talk about that more. So, um, I guess one of the other things I'm curious, so from 2014 to where we are now, which we're at the very end of 2019. And when people listen to this, it'll be the beginning of the new decade. Um, but you know, you've had six years under your belt and when you broke onto the scene, I think that you brought a very different design aesthetic And I just feel like the whole apparel market has changed in cycling so much. Uh, And I I feel like it's, there's so many reasons for that. But one of the main ones is being able to find where you fit exactly online and not having to be like, okay, this is what's available to me at this shop. So I go into my favorite shop and they carry these brands and they're going to tell me that's what I should buy. And in the case of cycling apparel, especially performance cycling apparel, it's tough to do that and not try it on and, and all of that other stuff. So I'm just wondering, like, first question is, you know, how, ha- what was the competitive landscape like for you then from a brand standpoint? And then I'd love to talk about, like, how you continue to build an experience when people maybe want to touch and feel or, you know, have that re- validation of somebody at retail or who knows what. Like, so we're going to get into that as well. Yeah, but. First question is really like competitive landscape oriented.
1: Yeah. So, um, yeah, when we first started, it was, um, it was way less competitive. Um, and that was really like, that's why I quit my job and wanted to just go all in. Cause I was like, I feel like now's our window. Like the women's scene, people are starting to like pay more attention. And I was like, it's really important that I kind of get the brand out there before other brands with more money and more marketing power. Um, start to like take up the airwaves. So, yeah. um, so it, I was pushing really hard to launch. I, I really wanted to launch like spring of 2014, but at least got it out the door before the end of summer. Right. So it was really, really important to me that I got it live that year. And yeah, I think our design aesthetic was very unique and that set us apart. And I think it still does actually. Cause like the there's like someone told me there's like 168 cycling brands out there right now, like apparel brands, which is just like crazy because the market size is not that big. Yeah. Um, you know, we're not looking at like the 87 billion dollar global like activewear industry. So, uh-huh. um so it's just crazy that there's so many brands, but um it, we have all those brands because the custom kit business is so accessible. Um so a lot of time most of those brands are really just like graphic plays on this, a very similar iteration of kit. Right. Um, and where machines is able to really remain distinctive is that we build kit from the ground up. Like our patterns are all built from the ground up. We, we innovate. We really like rethink what riders might need and want in cycling kit. And so keeping that core value is really important. Um, it's one of the reasons why we don't just like launch a print every month and become this more of this like fast fashion business model. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, our our kit's really designed to be a piece that you have in your closet for a very long time. We've been able to maintain a competitive edge by maintaining that really unique point of view and that really unique design ethos. For sure.
0: And I think that that is, it's almost hard to like convey that. Here's the other piece of it that I, I just feel like you guys have done a great job with is, I mean, let's face it. I don't love shopping for bathing suits or jeans. Right. And it's because it's kind of like on, for me, I have to get my head in the right place. And like, you know what I mean? Like, it's like, I don't know. There's a lot of self judgment and I don't know. Like it's as a female shopper and I love shopping, but kit. Okay. This is a whole different ballgame. Like, let's say I learn about what you do. I go online and I might be like, okay, that looks extremely tight fitting. And I know it, the cyclist in me is like, I want that because it's going to perform better and I'm going to have better comfort, etc. But what is that going to be like to wear? And you have done a beautiful job portraying every body shape, lots of different types of women, different nationalities, like Literally I feel like <laughs> even if I don't relate with some of the people that are you're portraying I do because it gives me permission like I can wear this because it's about my passion as a cyclist it's not about necessarily like can I wear that am I fit enough to wear that not at all like you completely yeah. removed that piece of it out of the equation that obstacle and I think that's one of the most powerful things that launching a brand online can do and you've done a great job with that. So I just wanted to give you an opportunity to talk about if that was something that you did from the very beginning, or if it's something that you did because you just, you also didn't see that out there and you wanted to make that be part of the process, like where it invites more people in.
1: Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you for that compliment. And I I do have to give a lot of credit to uh, my amazing team. Well, and my amazing team, primarily one of Ginger, who's been like a really driving force behind a lot of our marketing and part of the, like the ethos of the brand has always been to show what the sport looks like from a different point of view. So, you know, it's like the, the pictures that I would see through marketing materials, through larger brands, like that wasn't necessarily gelling with like what I saw in real life in the sport. And so I wanted to show what the sport looked like from the rider's point of view and just change what the sport looks like. So, so then that started to drift into all of the like conversations that started to spark around 2016, right, where I think everyone started to become very critical of the messages that they were sending out there, and which is interesting because then it like kind of boiled back to my like old film studies background, right, about like those subtle messages that are sent in the way that something is shot, the way that something is framed, your quote-unquote casting choices, like things of that nature. Um, suddenly, like that language, like was coming back and. And so we, we started to look really critically at, at ourselves and what can we do to be better. And then that's what really drove us to like continue to like push the needle in terms of what the sport looks like. And it was something that was very well received very quickly by the community. So then it made it really easy just to like keep in that trajectory and keep pushing that envelope forward.
0: So you like got overwhelmingly positive response on your social media depiction of what you were portraying.
1: Yeah. And, you know, and part of it was, I don't know about you and uh, we don't need to go like down a political rabbit hole or anything, but like 2016 was like very jarring and it was very like an aha moment and a like, holy bleak, like what Uh is, (laughs) what is going on here? And, you know, and then like we sat around the office, like, you know, me and the time Tracy was doing a lot of our photography and Ginger, and we were just sort of like in shock. And, all of a sudden like making kit really didn't seem that important to be quite honest mm-hmm. and i was just like who cares like who cares about our cycling clothes you know like the world is falling apart like <laughs> what <laughs> we have bigger problems so um i think part of what made us all feel better about the work we were doing is like what can we do in our small corner of the world to um make this world a more positive place and make this world a more positive place for people that are being marginalized so our way of doing that was to make the sport of cycling look more inclusive and um what's really great is like we get really incredible feedback by people that don't even ride bikes and they like follow our brand and they love our brand and they've never really been a bike other than like maybe a beach cruiser down the boardwalk like on occasion but they just they love the message that's being sent out so like that in my mind is like especially when you're in the early stages of a business and you have no idea what's going to happen, even if this thing crashes and burns, I feel good knowing that we've made that little bit of change in the world. You
0: absolutely have. And I mean, within the community, it's it's definitely been... I think something that has lifted up other people to realize that they can do the same in their own way, and I realize that sometimes that can be competitors positioning themselves doing that. But at the same time, there's there's just a, a I think there's a very like a truth to what what your brand depiction is that it's for the greater good. And even if there are competitors coming in, trying to like position themselves that way, it's actually going to, there's a part of that that's positive too. Cause it, it, even through their channels, it brings more people in and enables them to be part of it. Um, so we have to go, I think it's such a perfect place for us to talk about specialized. So when did specialized enter the picture? And can you talk a little bit about like that, the process, the conversations and like ultimately like where you are now as partners?
1: Yeah. So uh, they came into the picture about, gosh, it was probably about two years ago now is when the conversation started. And it was during a time when I was really pounding the pavement for um, investment. Mm-hmm. And I just needed help. I had been bootstrapping the company for a few years. I was like working a side hustle still. Dabbling in design and running design projects in order to fund the business. I mean, obviously that's not sustainable. <laughs> so, no. <laughs> um, you know, so I was just like hustling, trying to like find some fuel to really move us up to the next level. And um, and then all of a sudden, like in LinkedIn, I get a message from somebody who at the time was in leading business development and was like, "Hey, we're w- looking for a women's business leader." do you happen to know of anyone? Right. And I was like, hmm, is this person fishing to see if I'm looking for a job, you know? And, uh, uh if I wrote back, I was like, well, I'm, you know, I'm not looking for work Right. this is like one of those moments where you just like, you don't necessarily answer the direct question. You just like answer the question you wish you heard, you know? Uh-huh. <laughs> so, um, so I just wrote That's back, awesome. I was like, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm not looking for work, but, um, you know, machines is going great. But, you know, if you want to talk about like I don't know, strategic partnership or, you know, anything along those lines, like would love to get together. So, um, you know, that led to coffee and then, you know, and the conversation started from there. And from the time of that first message to actually closing the deal was probably about a year long process. Um, we spoke for a really long time and the negotiations always take a while. Um, and then it ended up, um, you know, we, we talked about different ways of structuring it. It ended up being an acquisition. It really was like what we needed in order to Get, sort of get us to the next level. Right. Cause it's like, as you're building these businesses, it's like you go, go, go. And then you kind of hit this like chasm, you know, and you're like, Oh God. Okay. How am I going to like cross this massive chasm? Um, and you need something big at that moment in order to get propel you to the next spot. Mm-hmm. So for us specialized was the answer to like propelling us over that first huge, huge chasm. Mm-hmm. And so,
0: um, obviously that sounds a little untraditional, right? So you were, it, I'm just guessing here, but they were able to kind of see the absolute gold in enabling you to continue doing what you were doing, but potentially put a larger microphone in front of you and some efficiencies around you. Is that kind of the way it worked or how has it been like since then, the two years?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, they definitely saw how we were able to do something that they'd struggled to do and and it's really interesting now that I'm in it a little bit more, it's really interesting to see like the strengths of the large companies versus the strengths of the small companies and how it's like this ecosystem where you need both. Right. Because Mm it's like one does one really well, the other does something else really well. And and it's, you know, you kind of need both to like fuel the the whole like ecosystem. So, um, so yeah, they, uh, there was a conscious effort made to keep us very autonomous, which is great. You know, we're still based in Los Angeles. They're up in Morgan Hill. We have a lot of, they're not dictating our design. They're not dictating our marketing. You know, that still very much comes from, uh, machines for freedom headquarters, but there's a lot of brain power there that helps, you know, there's a a few individuals within the organization that are just like really smart, bright people that it's great because it's like sort of serves as that mentorship that I needed, um, Mm -hmm. as a new entrepreneur and a new, you know, CEO, you know, there's obviously the the financial help, which even just alleviating that pressure off of my shoulders allowed me to like think creatively again, because mm-hmm. playing that financial shell game as a startup was just like so exhausting. And it like really ate up so much of my creative energy. And then, yeah, like a lot of learnings, you know, it's like they have a very robust apparel group with like so much experience there, you know? So the fact that I have people that I can just call up and say like, Hey, like, how do you handle this? Or like, you know, hey, we're going to like launch in this other country. What do I need to do? Having those resources has been a huge, huge help.
0: That's fantastic. I love to hear that. And I also, you know, I think an obvious question here on, you know, the show and the audience that we serve here is part of that might've been a way for you to create more of a touch and feel experience through wholesale. Cause obviously they have a very solid wholesale business. Um, And I'm curious to know, like, I think, I'm not sure, but I'm assuming that they launch on kind of a traditional launch schedule. They don't drop, like when we worked with Athleta, we had 11 to 15 drops a year. And it was really great from a communication standpoint. We had all these stories and new product all the time. I imagine that you probably had the freedom to like launch when it made sense for you or when you were inspired or when you had something cool. And yet they might have a different, you know blueprint. So I'm curious to know yes. number one around launches, and then I'd love to also talk about wholesale in that channel.
1: Yeah. So, um, I mean, that's definitely probably one of the biggest learnings coming out of this, um, this first year together is how, um, what works for one brand doesn't work for another. Right. And, mm-hmm. and like, yeah, plugging into distribution was definitely like something we were hoping would be like super fruitful for us. Um, but it hasn't panned out the way that we had hoped. And, and I think largely because of product launch cycles, right? Like we are super nimble and quick to market. And, um, and it's better to launch a product at a time so that you have things to talk about rather than like entire collections so that you can like sell in, you know? And, um, and it, it's, it's challenging because the brick and mortar retail is not used to working in that capacity. Mm -hmm. Um, But then it also just like, it almost just like confirmed things I had learned earlier on in the process and was like kind of a, a lesson in like, Sometimes you have to just trust your gut, even if maybe you don't have as much experience. Like, you know, that doesn't mean that your your ideas about things are any less valid. There's still just those struggles there of shop selling apparel. It's really tough things like, I sympathize with shops, you know, in this respect, because you think about like a successful apparel retail environment, and they're like these wonderful spaces with beautiful lighting and lovely flowers, you know, these very like soft, inviting spaces where, you know, the clothes are like meticulously laid out and you get to like, you know, you you touch everything. And it's like a place where you feel safe and comfortable, like stripping down into your underwear, put on something that might make you feel a little self-conscious. This is very like kind of warm and safe space. But a bike shop's primary business is service. There's like grease and there's like tools and there's like hard surfaces. And, you know, and it's just like, it's so counterintuitive to a successful apparel environment. So, you know, I'm not surprised that they don't struggle in this area and it's not to anyone's fault, right? It's just, they're two very different products that you're trying to sell in the same space. Right. So it's a bit of like square peg, round hole kind of situation. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, there's definitely been some good relationships to form there, but I I think it just sort of reaffirms that Machines is a digitally native brand. We started as a digitally native brand and we do best when we can speak directly to our uh, community. Mm -hmm. So, and then that also like the messages just sort of get lost in translation when you're trying to rely on shop sales staff to tell that message because they're just like, they're not trained in the product. Right. And and there's like this weird, it's kind of this weird relationship too, where, you know, you have historically, right? Bike shops have kind of picked a large brand to partner with, right? Like be it specialized Trek giant, they have their like their leading brand. And then those brands really come in and sort of set up, the, what the product landscape is going to look like. Right. And like, here's what you can put in your store. And they, they offer them everything that they need to sell the rider. And it's like really this turnkey solution for them. And as a small brand, like we don't have the capacity to do that for them. And I was thinking about, there's this shop, which I'm completely spacing on the name. It's down in Venice and it's this really, really great apparel shop. And it started when the owner or the, the designer wanted to own, open his own brick and mortar around his own collection, but his collection was pretty limited. So he didn't have enough products like fill a store. So he went out and he found all these like obscure brands in like, Japan and things like that. And he'd like bring in these pieces and, and add that to the, his collection in order to like, fill out a store. And you go there because he created this really wonderful shopping experience. And he's bringing in like that obscure brand from Japan. That obscure brand from Japan doesn't have to like build a market in the United States in order to sell the product the product is selling through because the retailer knows how to like sell that product. So that's sort of like what was missing in the, in the bike side is that shops that bring in machines and then expect machines to do a lot of the work to like drive consumers to the shops, because that's the way things have worked for these like larger brands that have more power behind them. But we just don't have the capacity to do that. You know, it's right. like, we can do what we can. We can list you on our stockist page. We can like shout you out when you're doing a ride or, like on our social media and stuff like that. But we can't like, we can't like run your business for you. But then I think it just sort of creates a lot of tension because it's just, they're frustrated, we're frustrated. And it's just like, everyone's frustrated. And then it's, you know, it's just like, it's not a very great way to do business. So definitely a lot of learnings there, but I think there's just been a lot of interesting discussion happening around what the bike shop landscape looks like with the online world right on its heels. And I'm really curious to see how it all like plays out over the next five, 10 years.
0: And that was really like the question to wrap it up is like, what is that evolution? And we can't really say, cause it's obviously like a work in progress, but I feel like the, one of the biggest takeaways for my listeners are just so committed to trying to figure out how to be remarkable to their target and consumer. And yeah. that to me is the takeaway for what we're talking about here today is yes you you partnered with specialized they've given you great you know foundational pieces and and you're still identifying quote efficiencies around you know the relationship but what i love most about this is they've let you really caretake and grow your community and yeah. there may be a way to do that through an, uh, a retail a bicycle retailer in the future or it may turn out to be a different semblance of it, or it might be no set and forget, which is what my gut is saying is like, we keep trying and testing and learning new things. Right. Mm-hmm. And as the consumer is evolving and as the demand at the store is, devol- is is evolving, I feel like the right path will present itself and then it will change. I mean, the most successful brands, companies out there I think are really, really good at either saving people time or making that time fantastic, right? Mm-hmm. And this comes from a Scott Galloway blog post and I'll put the link in, in the podcast notes page. But essentially, you know, he's talking about like trillion dollar market cap, Google, Amazon, Facebook. And he's like, Facebook won't survive because they are a time suck as they've developed their paid platform. And, you know, but these other, you know, Amazon, Google and Apple, I think is the other one. Amazon and Google primarily are his focus save time and train the consumer to want that. And so we're dealing with a consumer that's trained by these huge, huge companies. And we all have time at a premium, but we also all want to have self-identification. And so I feel like you found self-identification, artisan, hand-built, and then we have like a platform that's been built that we want to try and, you guys were trying to graft that onto. I can see how maybe the first like Swipe at that didn't work, but I bet you there is something that will work that may just not be turnkey. It might be where it works, it might be pop up. I mean, who knows what it could be? Yeah. But I have a feeling the reach is the key, right? It's allowing people who might be in the specialized community or the community of the shops to identify with what machines for freedom is. That self identification is going to probably drive you to see the answer with your colleagues there.
1: Yeah, it's. Really interesting what you bring up with regards to like Google and Amazon. And I have to check out this article, right? About like Facebook won't make it, right? Like who could imagine that? Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> a world without Facebook? What? <laughs> um, but yeah, it is. It's kind of like uh, people want the thing and it's like, what's the easiest way to obtain the thing? You know, and they're going to go down the path of least resistance, or the path mm-hmm. of least frustration, you know? And so if the experience is negative, then they're going to like, try a different channel and and I've been thinking a lot about like the um climbing scene I see a lot of parallels between like the climbing scene in the 80s like the 70s and 80s and like what's happening in cycling now and like how did the climbing world go from climbing being this like really obscure thing to then kind of blowing up into the like just more broad adventuring right family camping and um and it you know you sort of saw like Patagonia and REI like grow side by side So you had like the, the, the product and the brand, um, leveraging the distribution channel and vice versa. And so they were able to kind of like grow together Mm -hmm. and I'm like on the cycling side, like, where is that, um, like, where is that, that like strong distribution that brands can then like tap into and like, so that we can grow side by side and like really make the sport more accessible to more people it is an exciting time because now that you see like e-bikes popping up and things like that, like cycling is becoming more accessible to people and people are concerned with transportation and, and things like that. So moving around cities and, you know, I just,
0: I feel like you're, you're hitting on it because we, I think that it has been, we've seen it as business owners who are in the business of cycling and have been for some time, we have seen what we think is the market. And I think there is a whole, host of sub-markets all around that that are emerging right now. And yeah. I think your, actually your story brings that to light so clearly. Again, I go back to one of our first topics today is like, you actually built this community around a quote, point of entry that already existed, right? <laughs> right. And so what other what other communities are out there that are going to be met? And, you know, e-bike will be important to that. I think the way that you are um, inviting Everybody in who wants to be in, right? No matter what they look like or where they're from, if they go to your site and they're a female interested in cycling, they feel empowered. Like, I can totally do this. You know, I feel like there's a lot of, if she can see it, she can be it. And we need to expand that even to like different user groups, different, you know, I just feel like there's so much outside of what we potentially may have seen as an industry for a long time. Mm -hmm. There's a whole huge community out there that is still waiting to hear from us and wants to join and will have their own version of it, you know? And I just feel like the internet is, is what's making all that possible. And that's ultimately where you launched. I almost feel like you had a bit of a Kickstarter the way you launched, even though it wasn't a Kickstarter, cause you were in the trenches, whether it was on a ride or, you know, looking at every post you hand built your original community. Yeah, you really did.
1: Yeah. And that I mean, and I say it over and over, like our, I don't think Machines for Freedom would exist without the internet and without social media, because that's really what enabled us to to get to the riders. Mm -hmm.
0: That's really powerful. And so as we kind of close with looking at the future, of course, we can't see like where it's going. But I I think expansion um, is a really important word to highlight and then to be open minded and to actually go to your audience and find out what it is that they're missing and and maybe some people who aren't in your audience and yeah. find out how, you know, how you can serve them. I don't know. I just feel like it's a very dynamic time as we're going into this new decade.
1: Yeah. And it's exciting to see some of this, like the the industry being infused again with some entrepreneurial spirit, right? Oh, yeah. Like a little bit of that willingness to experiment and to push the envelope and to try different things. Um, you know, I think that's what the industry needs to kind of like shake things up a little bit.
0: I agree. And I think, You're a very important player in that regard, and I hope that you'll continue to be there. And truly, like, hats off to Specialize for forming the partnership that they did with you and enabling you to, you know, continue to do. I hate to use the word disruption because it's so overused. I think it's more inspiration combined with disruption. Like, you made it work because you totally listened to your consumer and you built something with them. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that's, that's great proof of concept in terms of, like, the evolution and the widening of this community that we're, that we're experiencing right now. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. I know it's not an easy job that you have, but just know it's an important one. Okay.
1: Thank you. I might write that down and tape it to my wall. Yes.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Cool. Well, I have to tell you, I was so excited to interview you and just share your expertise and your, just how you view the world and what you've gone through here, like you have a completely unique story and I think it's going to touch a lot of people and inspire a lot of people. And I'm just so grateful you were able to come on the show today. So thank you so much for your time.
1: Oh, thank you. Yeah. I'm so glad we were finally able to connect after all these years. Cause me, me too. <laughs> your name has come up so many times and I'm like, I must meet this woman. Like, <laughs> thank you so much for having me on the show.
0: And then before we completely hang up here, how can people in the audience learn more about you and maybe offer not only like where they can find you, but also what one of your in real life activations might be that they might find you at in the future.
1: Um, So you can find us either on our website, machinesforfreedom.com, or through Instagram, which is at machines for freedom. Um, And then we will be at SBT gravel this year, which we're really excited about. So um, if you're able to get in, Congratulations. We can't wait to see you there. Um and if you missed out this year, like we're hopefully going to be at a few more gravel events um in 2020. So, yeah, follow us online and we'll keep you apprised of where we're going to be. That's
0: awesome. Well, I look forward to all of that and thank you again for your time. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to the show today. If you're finding value in the Channel Mastery podcast, and I certainly hope you are, I'd love to ask that you subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform, as well as rate and review the show on iTunes. Doing so helps more people discover the content, more specialty business and brand leaders can be helped by the incredible resources we're offering every week on the show. I also would like to invite you to join our community at channelmastery.com or verdepr.com. Sign up with your email and you'll receive special resources and content created just for friends of the podcast. You'll also receive advanced notice of new channel mastery trainings and offerings. Thanks for listening and see you next week.